when I go to teach research for sales and use tax, this is going to be a case I want to talk about because both sides, you know, they they kind of did what they should have, but you really got to look at all the pieces. This is the PMP Industry Insider Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome out to another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast, where we look at what is changing in the industry and we take you to the front lines to those that are driving those changes. As always, I'm Donnie Shelton, owner of Triangle Home Services, which has Triangle Pass as well as Triangle Lawn. And with me is an ex-Floridian, um, aka, should I call you an ex-Floridian? Dan is coming to us live, live from Jersey, uh, which he has in the past has been coming to us from Florida. Reminds me of someone else who's very famous and very popular who bounces from New York to Margalo, maybe. I don't know. And with that, I ladies and gentlemen. Even, I don't even think so. And I don't think he'd be back in New York. I think they'd arrest him. Who knows? Who knows? Let's not get political here. So. We're not getting political. Yeah. Go ahead. So anyway, yeah. So Dan Gordon, PCO bookkeepers, PCO MA specialists. Uh, fractionalized CFO and exit planning. And um, so um, this episode, uh, our guest is Rich Valeri. I'll give the bio in a minute, but before we do that, let's talk about our sponsors. So we are sponsored by Colmarch by Workwave. If you're interested in digital marketing and what they have to offer for the industry, learn more about that at uh, colmarch.com. We are also sponsored by Pestsure. Uh, Pestsure is uh, a captive insurance company that uh, works with uh, pest control companies all over the country, uh, and they do an outstanding job. And if you want to look at them, that would be pestsure.com. So hang on, hang on. Bef- bef- before you go on there, yeah, I just, I just, ahead, I just have to say this for our audience. We, we, we all do need to, if you, if you get a chance, just shoot Dan a text or an email. He, he's gone three episodes now where he has not forgotten to mention our sponsors and he actually introduced himself and he started with our guests. So just Great job, Dan. Just want to throw that I, out there. Listen, I totally got it out of whack, and I, that's what I do. But uh, <laughs> so today we're talking about something near and dear to my heart. Uh, this is a um, uh, you know uh, a very exciting topic. Uh, it's uh, what you need to know about sales and use tax audits. So uh, <laughs> our guest is uh, Rich Valeri. He's a CPA. He owns a company called Southwest Sales Tax Solution. This is an interesting niche practice that focuses on state uh, sales and use tax. His practice focuses on research, audit representation, reverse audits, other sales and use tax services. In addition to me going to high school with Rich, Rich and I were high school mates, Rich has performed uh, research for us, PCO bookkeepers, for clients that we've um, used uh, in uh, sales and use tax audits that have resulted in significant uh, savings. And today we're happy to have Rich join us to discuss sales and use tax concerns, potential problems that pest control and lawn care companies can run into. Rich, welcome. Good morning from Las Vegas, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I uh, uh, wanted to jump right in. I, I thought that this was a real uh, interesting topic because we're pretty active with um, uh, several uh, sales and use tax audits. And what we're seeing is certain states are targeting our industries. And we can talk about that. But let's so a lot of people think that, uh, you know, OK, I I uh, in my state, uh, the services aren't taxable. So therefore, I don't have to file a return. And there's sales and use tax. What is the difference between sales and use tax? And this is a great question. And it's a question that I come across almost every week when I meet with clients who are being audited. The way I like to explain it to my clients because they don't have a tax background is to think of sales tax as an intrastate tax within your borders and think of use tax as an interstate, so outside your borders. Sales tax is a tax that's required. It's a a tax for uh, a privileged tax for doing business in a state. So if you're in a state and you do business with a company and they're selling something that's subject to sales tax, they're going to charge it. And that's where sales tax applies. But if you purchase that same item from from an out-of-state company and they do not charge you sales tax, then you have to self-assess a tax. And that's known as a use tax. And that's how the interstate versus intrastate difference comes to play. 
Okay. And, so, and I was going to say, and, and I was, you know, at least at triangle, we were, we were bit with this, um, a while back. I mean, I think now, but mainly because we were doing a lot of online ordering and we were, you know, like office supplies. And I mean, we didn't buy chemical via the internet, but we bought office supplies. We bought other things. I mean, it's just things that you wouldn't even think about and was not being charged sales tax. And then we got a use tax audit and that came up. This was one of the items that we had to, so, we had so to deal with. So if you're buying from an amazon.com, Right. You're they, probably going to be okay. You're probably okay, right? But if you're yep. buying from somebody who's not registered in your state, somebody who's in you know far away, and they don't charge you sales tax, um, what do you think, Rich? Do you? Do, uh, a lot of folks say, "Well, let's not register for it because we're not subject to sales tax." How does that come back to bite you? Uh, well, that? again, this is when you set your your business up. It's important to have um, a competent attorney or a CPA, make sure that you're in compliance with state laws as it comes to registration and taxes. Most states, uh, I'm, I'm gonna take a little bit of a leap because there's there's 45 states that have sales tax. So my, my experience is that they're mostly the same. So if you set up a business, for example, I set up Southwest Sales Tax Solutions. I, my services are exempt from sales tax. However, I do have to still be registered with the state. So I have a mechanism where I can collect, if I have to self-assess use tax, I can do that and I can remit it to the state. So, so in my experience, every business is, is required to be registered for sales and use or just use tax, depending how the state has it set up. And if you're not registered, um, that will lead to other problems down the road, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. So let's talk about... Um you know, uh, those that don't file and think that they don't and maybe have use tax due or have a liability that maybe they haven't self-assessed. Um, what does, uh, what, in terms of filing, what does that do for statute of limitations? First explain statute of limitations sure. and why that's important. Statute of limitations, I like to, to explain it to clients as it's a period of time where the state can come in and review your records or on the taxpayer side, you can file for a refund. I, I The way I explain it to my clients is I tell them, look, there's got to be a period in time where you can just say, you know, can I forget about these records they are 10 years old or 20 years old? Do I need to keep them? That statute, if you have an active statute, which is for most states, three years, you need to keep records for at least three years. I always tell clients, keep them for seven. That seems to be the standard. Then anything past seven years, you can let go. The importance of filing a return is that it triggers the statute. So if, if the state comes in and audits you and you've never filed a return, in theory, they could audit you from the very first day you began business. And that could be 10, 15, 20 years. But if you've been filing returns, the state can only go back three years unless there's something that would, um, and this would be more of a legal concept, that would make the statute disappear. For example, there could be criminal activity, something of that nature. But most businesses are not, you know, there's not a nefarious um, situation going on. So if the state comes in and audit, the statute limitations will protect you. So right now, if you have a three-year statute, I believe anything before May of 2020 is now off the table. So if you made a mistake in April of 2020 or before that, it doesn't matter. The state can't touch it. So filing return is advantageous for the taxpayer in protecting themselves by triggering the statute limitations. So that statute runs from the time that you file. So let's say that, as you just said, you never filed it for 10 or 15 years and you said, you know, geez, I, I, I probably should do this. Or as a result of an audit, they tell you that you have to. And so you file that return five or 10 years late. When does that statute, does that statute start now or does it start 10 or 15? How, how does that work? In Nevada, and again, every state's different, but in my state in Nevada, they will look two years from the date of filing a late return in that situation. Um, and of course, that will lead to other questions too. I mean, you know, I think sometimes taxpayers are afraid to do that. They're like, oh, I should have filed, but if I, they can't audit me if they don't know I exist, you know? So they're afraid to do anything. But the truth of the matter is they will find you because if they audit one of your customers, one, what state auditors do, they're just not auditing you. They're looking for leads. They're looking for other taxpayers who may be subject to audit. So when they look at your, so if they look at a, a, 
a taxpayer who you do business with. So you, let's say you do pest control services for a company and that company is audited and that pest, that invoice for that month falls in a sample month of that company's audit. What the state will do is they review every vendor that that company does business with to make sure they're properly registered in the state. So that's how you'll be caught. And now you haven't filed a return and you know it just becomes a very uh, scary situation. Most so of the me, sales, so in sales, we call that a referral. <laughs> right. And in the audit world, it's called the lead. It's called the lead. And, you know, the, most states, though, they realize that to go back 10, 20 years, it's just not practical. So they'll say, like in Nevada, the policy is we only go back seven years or eight years or, you know, whatever they decide to do. But they do have the ability to go back to day one and they can probably figure that out through other ways, you know, Secretary of State filings, that sort of thing. So I always tell taxpayers, you know, even if you don't have a liability or you don't have any use tax to report a zero return, because the state doesn't know unless you file. So it's critical that you file. So you tell the state, hey, this is my situation. You get that statute triggering uh, and you're in a good spot. So let me just repeat what you just said, because you answered the question I was getting ready to ask, which is, and I just want to summarize this for our listeners. So even if you're in a state where you don't collect sales tax as part of your service, your recommendation is that you file anyway, just to make sure that you protect yourself as much as you can with statute of limitations. Is that is that a fair statement? Is that kind of what you were saying there? Even if it's zero? Right. But in that situation, again, if you probably are doing business in a state where you're registered secretary of state, you have local licenses, you have a state business license. Um, one of the mechanisms also is that, like I know in Nevada, you can't get a local license unless you can prove to the jurisdiction that you are, are registered for sales and use tax. So there's checks and balances when you, when you uh, secure your business licenses that should register you. And once you're registered, and I've seen this before where taxpayers are registered, but they don't realize or they mistakenly think, well, I didn't have any, I didn't have any taxable items, so I didn't file. Well, the state doesn't know that. If you don't file, how does the state know? You can't make that assumption. So it's always advantageous to file. Just because you file a zero or no activity return doesn't mean you're going to get audited. It doesn't raise flags because there are certainly many times where you may not have activity. It could be seasonal. You know, there could be a number of reasons why, but again, um, you know, it's, it's just being entered into a computer and unless the state's looking for something, you're going to be fine. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm going to ask you kind of an interesting question about, so let's say that we've filed our sales and use tax and uh, five years ago, and we said that we purchased a few things, but uh, you know, so we paid our use tax and whatnot. And so the statute is closed, so they can't audit you unless there's fraud or something like that, um, or, or they can't assess you unless there's fraud or something like that. But let's say that you own a bunch of vehicles or equipment that sits on your balance sheet. And so can they look at the use tax due on that, even though you might have purchased that truck five years ago? but it's still on your balance sheet on an active return. Can they go in and uh, assess use tax if, if you didn't pay it, um, even though the statute's closed because that's kind of open on an income tax return? So Dan, the answer to that's no. And here's the reason why. Sales and use tax is a transaction tax. It's not an income tax. So it's when the transaction occurred. So if you purchase that vehicle June, June 2nd of 2018, and the statute would have closed, say, 2021. Um, when they review your fixed asset listing, they're going to look at um, purchase dates of the vehicles, and they're going to see if they're outside the statute or outside the audit period, they can't touch it. So, um, yeah, it's again, it's that's important. And if you filed your returns, you've pr you're protected. Now, if you haven't filed a return, of course, there's no statute. So, yes, and they could. So file those returns. Don't let them. Don't let them sit on your desk on file. Hmm. Okay. 
Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some stories that you, I mean, I've, to me, like I, I learned the most when I, when I hear what has actually transpired and what, what actually goes on. Can you just tell us about some things that you, you know, some, some clients that you have, or believe that people were doing things the right way. And it turns out, you know, they got an audit and they realized, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, something, anything that kind of it, it can, you know, that you can think of where someone thought for sure, okay, yeah, I'm clean. I'm looking good. And then they get into an audit and realize like, oh no, this is, this is not right. Sure. I mean, many clients they're they believe they're doing everything perfectly and, and often they, um, it could be a software issue for, I've seen situations where they have different revenue categories. They haven't set up as taxable, not taxable, but either the sales tax report isn't capturing the revenue stream for some reason, or there's another problem. You know, there's checks and balances you can do. The one thing I tell taxpayers is if you're not a multi-state company, if you're located in one state, there should be a correlation between what's reported on the federal return versus what's reported on the sales tax return. And if there's not, there could be reasons. You know, the federal return could be cash basis, but the sales tax is a cruel basis. I mean, it could be things that, you know, that have ex there's explanations for, but you have to take a look at it and you have to document why there's differences. Because this, during an audit, the state's going to do the same thing. They're going to look at the federal return. They're going to say, wait a minute, how is it that you can report 1.5 million to the feds, but you're only reporting 600,000 to the state? You know, what, what's that gap? And there could be a logical explanation, you know, and it could be a mistake on the federal return. Maybe there was a PPP loan that the preparer accidentally picked up as gross income. And of course, with sales tax, you wouldn't pick that up. And that's what's causing the difference. But it will come up in an audit. And I always advise clients, there's certain due diligence you should do at the end of every year. You should try to have an understanding and try to reconcile the federal tax return to the sales tax returns that you filed. Uh, the other thing you should look at is fixed assets, because when you have an audit, it's normally a, a sample-based audit, but fixed assets are normally reviewed in full. So they'll look at every purchase that's applicable to the audit period. And I always tell clients, you know, you think you've paid sales tax, but pull those invoices, keep a copy of those invoices handy. I know we live in a digital age and that's fine. Maybe have a digital file folder for every asset you capitalize and make sure the sales tax has been paid or if necessary, accrue the use tax. Because if you are audited, they're going to look at every single one of those. You can do that work now so that when the audit comes, you can just give them the work papers and you know it goes by real quick. But you know, it's funny when I work with clients who are being audited, I, I get the same story there. They don't understand why they're being audited. They're like, but I do everything right and I file my return. But when we dig down on the records, we see there's a lot of mistakes, often by poor bookkeeping, poor record keeping, things like that. And even though the taxpayer believes that they've done everything as required uh, by the state to properly capture and remit sales and use tax, we find out that's not the case. You know, so, and just I was going to just say yeah. for our listeners, um, we we as a business, we we. By the way, I'm the worst at keeping paperwork. I hate it. But <laughs> with it, like it's a pain, and you know what? Um, it's just not what I do. I ended up buying, and and by the way, I don't, I don't. I'm just. This is just a for our listeners a, a thing that we did to solve this problem. You don't have to do this. Uh, I use a thing called a, it's called Fujitsu Snap Scan or Scan Snap, I think is the name of it. You can look it up on Amazon, but it's super easy. You can program it just to push to a specific folder on Google Drive or whatever. Anytime you get these invoices, like it solved the problem. It made it so I could do it, which was we throw it on the scanner, we hit, you know, scan and done. And it, it automatically goes where it needs to go. I don't have to deal with it. I don't go through and organize it and do a bunch of other stuff, but I figure eh, if we get an audit, we can go through and do it then. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. You know what I mean? But at least I've got it. It's it's a system in place where I can still keep up with the paperwork. So anyway, just so, a little aside. So Rich, I, I think Donnie was peppering you for a war story uh, that, that uh, but but let's talk about a war story that you and I worked on in Massachusetts. Oh. <laughs> so so Massachusetts, by the way, remember the, 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 I called it a sales lead, Rich called it a lead, uh, you know, that, that uh, and, and, and they're starting to audit um, 
all the pest control companies up there. And, and it's not limited to Massachusetts, but let's talk about Massachusetts as a state where the uh, actual service itself is not taxable. So that, that um, what the purchases are, um, uh, the purchases are subject to use tax. And so let's talk about what happened there and um, the research that you did and uh, found out for us. You know, I, I'm not prepared for this one because I, 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 I do so much research. Yeah. Um, if I recall correctly, the odd, there was an exemption that was, I think enacted sometime it was like 2008 around there. The auditor was not considering for the audit. I'm not sure why that was. Yeah. So, so basically what happened was there's a, um, uh, there's a loophole, if you will, in the law that says that if you buy restricted use pesticides, which are pesticides that a licensed pest control person or lawn care, uh, that, that those are not uh, subject to the use tax, but non-restricted use uh, pesticides, which a lot of clients use, you know, uh, you know, or like bait stations or things like that are subject to it. And so what happened was they wanted to charge use tax on all purchases. Um, and um, what we found, and, and for our client, that would have been uh, probably $100,000 or more in sales tax. But what we found is this uh, area of the law that said that uh, restricted use pesticides are not taxable. And uh, Rich did that research for us. And we were able to use that with uh, one of our clients there. And I got contacted by several other folks who weren't clients uh, in Massachusetts uh, because of, uh, I guess, through the uh, New England Pest Management Association, uh, they had questions about it. But but Massachusetts is not the only one. What? And by the way, you don't have to stick to the pest control or lawn care industry because I think it's a, you know, it's a universal concept. But what are some of the other areas that you, uh, you know, sometimes the auditor comes in and people are scared and they just say, just make them go away. I'll write a check and that's it. <laughs> you should come out of the corner and you should be fighting, right? I mean. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, auditors by nature are lazy and you're dealing with state workers who are under pressure to open and close so many audits a month. It's a perfect storm. And most taxpayers, um, they're just they're, they're, they don't know what to do or they don't have proper representation. We're here in Las Vegas. It's very interesting because we have people from all over the world here. And I've met, uh, I've had clients that come from the traditional Soviet bloc nations. And when they have an auditor come in, they are scared. And this is from experiences when they were younger. I had a situation where my clients were from Romania and we had to go visit the department and the, the, it was a husband and wife, and they were afraid that they were going to be locked up. They were making arrangements for their kids to be taken over, you know, have relatives take care of their kids. That's how afraid they were. Because wow. from, where they, from where they grew up and what they experienced when they were younger is that when the state authority wants you to come into their building, you're not coming out. It's like the Roach Motel, right? It's, wow. you know, roaches come in. But and, and this is, and, you know, it comes down if you want to talk about a war story, I have a very interesting one I thought about um, preparing for this podcast. And that was, uh, was a year ago. I had a client, there's a concept in sales tax. Fabrication labor is a very misunderstood concept in sales tax. And it, it, it really is a thorn in the side for a lot of businesses. And a lot of audits I work with involve fabrication labor. And the statutes from Nevada are very, um, it's very black and white. If you're in the manufacturing realm, it's taxable. But if you're in a repair and maintenance realm, it's exempt. So you have to define that. And my client, they restore cars. Uh, most of their business is hubcaps. They do re restoration of hubcaps. Anything metal, they restore. And the statute is very clear that if you're, if you're restoring an item to its original condition, then fabrication labor is not taxable. You, you must pay sales or use tax on the materials, say the powder coating or any of the materials needed to restore it, but the actual charge is a service that's not subject to tax. And the state came in, they audited my client, they say he owed about 600,000. And in Nevada, because we're in such a warm climate, you know, cars and part of the California culture, cars are huge, restoration, it's a big industry. So you have these companies that will do restoration to the metals and 
and my, uh, my client's case are focusing on, we did a ton of hubcap restoration, but also people were bringing in items. For example, you buy a house and the, if you've ever been in Nevada, you know, we have cinder block walls and we have these wrought iron gates to get to the backyard. Well, those gates rust over time because they're not treated. So they'll, they'll take the gate to my client and he'll restore it and he'll coat it so that it looks like new and it doesn't rust and you can, you know, reattach it to the wall and it looks great. The state's argument was that, oh no, it's not, it's not restoration, he's manufacturing. They're trying to say he was a manufacturer because what happens in audits is that states will have a policy set by someone who's a million miles away here in Nevada, it's someone up in Carson City, it's a bureaucrat that says, we have to make sure that all fabrication labor is taxed no matter what. And even though like the auditor was horrified because she understood that my client was not manufacturing hubcaps or not manufacturing gates or um, I, one of the items that came up in the audit, the client collected antique toys and he had one of these radio flyer wagons and my client, you know, they, they sanded it down and they refurbished it and brought it back to the condition that it was when it was first purchased back in the 60s. And they're trying to say, oh, they're, he's manufacturing a wagon. I'm like, where do you get this wow. from? So, we're, so we went to, and you know, Dan, is, we have this background as a CPA. We think of manufacturing. What is manufacturing? It's taking raw materials and putting them together and making a brand new item. So we went to hearing and the state was trying to say, oh, you know, we've had these cases before. You can't win. But I'm looking at the statute. And the statute's pretty black and white. So I said to the attorney general who was representing Nevada, I said, well, what was the legislative intent? Let's go back. And we the statute was passed in the late 60s. But unfortunately, we couldn't find any records in legislative uh, what their intent was. So we had to kind of go with the literal words in the statute. Well, I ended up winning the hearing. And I think the judge was a little concerned about the state's attitude and that, you know, the client, the taxpayers manufacturing, that's our story and we're sticking to it. And you couldn't put any logic in there. But this all goes back to audits where if you have proper representation, um, you can peel back the layers and really get to what, what should it be, you know? The state, they'll often, you know, especially if your records aren't up to par, they'll just use estimates. And trust me, the estimates are, they're ambitious. They're very, um, <laughs> they, they don't favor the taxpayer. Let's just leave it at that. So, you know, it, it, that, that's a worse story that I look back on, on the hearing from last year and I'm like, it's unbelievable that a state would want to bring this to hearing and run with a story that they know is just false. And so the lesson, know, yeah. So the lesson is don't just assume that this guy's coming in and you're going to pay him and, and get rid of him because, uh, you know, because you're scared. You can fight if you have a case, fight and win. We, you know, we, we, uh, you know, most of the audits that we work on, we either end up uh, adjusting, you know, these are income tax audits and sales tax audits and whatnot, adjusting downward, or sometimes we end up with no adjustment at all. But, you know, um, you've got to be willing to fight. Well, uh, I, if it's worth I, it. I was going to say, and I think in a lot of cases, don't they just kind of throw everything they can against the wall? Just to yeah. See. yeah. And then, let's and then, and then it's, yeah. And then it's up to you to kind of go back and say, well, you know, and, and, and pull it because I mean, we went through this and and the initial estimate was like, are you kidding me? And we started looking at some of the things that they were flagging and, and we ended up fighting same thing as what Dan said. We didn't fight. We got it. I mean, drastically reduced. We ended up, we did end up paying some and there, there was some, it was legit, but it was a fraction of what they claimed to start with. And so one, one of the questions I want to transition here real quick, Rich. So, I don't, I don't think a lot of our listeners have ever heard of this term. I am vaguely familiar with it, but can you just talk a little bit about what a reverse audit is and when that is appropriate? Like when, when would you consider that or when would it be appropriate to use something like that? So what it is and when would you use it? Absolutely. So for my firm, what we do is we offer reverse audit service to the client. And the idea behind that is that I pretend I am an auditor from the state of Nevada. I'm going to audit your business. And I'm going to use the same procedures the state of Nevada would use in an audit. So I'm going to select some sample months. I'm going to look at your fixed assets. I'm going to look at your sales. So I'm going to do all this due diligence for my audit to get all my data together. I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, okay, this is what we found. And we need to make these corrections. The idea is that, of course, there's no, at this juncture, we, we've caught it. And 
we have time to make corrections and we can decide do we wanna just make the corrections moving forward or we wanna go back and amend returns. It just depends on you know, the, the amount of tax and what the taxpayer wants to do. So little humor here, I like to describe a service as a colonoscopy. You know, we, we go in for a colonoscopy, right? We're all, we're all nervous about it, but what's, what's the point of it? It's to see if there's something going on. And so we catch it early enough so we can make the changes so that down the road, it doesn't, it doesn't destroy us. And that's, so the, and that's so really the recommendation. Idea. The recommendation is to not do it when you get an audit notice. It's to yes. maybe once a year. Because it's too to, late. At that juncture, it's yeah. too late. And I'll give you a real story on this. My second client ever, I'll never forget this. It was, it was November of, of 2009. My second client ever found me organically through the internet. And they said, they were having, and it was, again, it was fabrication labor. Um, it was a welding company, and they were saying that their CPA says that services are exempt in Nevada, but some of our competitors charge tax on fabrication, some don't. Like, they've seen it, and they didn't know what the right answer was. So I went in, and I performed a reverse audit. Now, this was during the recession, it's, and that's an important point, because during the recession, this particular company was only open four days a week. You know, the here in, I think Nevada was ground zero for just real estate disaster. So there's very I little construction that. going on. Yeah. Yeah. But yet, you know, they we went through and I I said, well, I'll perform a reverse audit. And I came up that they owed about 400,000 in tax. And then you had 9% interest. You had maybe a 20% penalty. And that number is very different. So now you're looking at, oh boy, you owe over half a million dollars. So what we decided to do was, Moving forward, any fabrication labor, my client was going to charge tax unless he had a, unless it was a resale certificate on file. Otherwise, they're going to charge tax. So we went ahead and we did that. And I said to him, well, do you want to go back and amend the returns? He said, no, if they come in and audit me, I'll just, I'll just wave the white flag. But moving forward, this is how I'm going to do it. And three years, three years and a day later, he calls me up and he says, Rich, the statute's over. And I, now I got all my, you know, I know if they get audited, um, my fabrication labor's being taxed. So he was audited, but it wasn't until 20, I think it was 2017, he was audited. Now at that time, the situation in Nevada was very different. His welding company was working six days a week. Revenues had tripled because there was all this construction boom going on. And obviously fabrication invoices, um, they had just increased. So the auditor came in. Now he did owe some tax, but it wasn't for fabrication labor. There were some use tax items that were missed. Uh, they did just a few things, but if he had not had that reverse audit, I honestly believe his assessment would have been well over a million dollars. And, um, you know, and then you have to, you know, what are you gonna do? You have to set up a payment plan and that, you know, they're gonna file liens and all that. So, in terms of when do I suggest, you know, when, when someone starts a business, it's always good to sit down and review the revenue streams. Is this subject to tax? Plus also, it's really, um, to, it's really good for the business owner or the bookkeeper or whoever does the books to make sure they have an understanding of when they should be capturing use tax. Um, it's never going to be perfect because use tax is very labor intensive. It would require reviewing every single invoice, which isn't going to happen. So you have to kind of do it at a vendor level and say, okay, any purchases from this vendor, they're out of state, they're not gonna charge Nevada tax, so we know we have to accrue use tax. And, and let's say that somewhere during, you know, during time they start charging tax. Well, then if you're audited, you can certainly get a refund at that time. But it, it's, you know, reverse audits are preventive and most taxpayers don't think in a preventive mode, they're in a reactionary mode. And unfortunately, when you're in a reactionary mode, you know, damage has been done. It's kind of like if you put, I know with my, my, my shrubs out here in Nevada, we have an issue with all sorts of parasites and bugs. Preventive mode is to put down the, the you know, the whatever spray you have to do to prevent the bugs, right? And now keep your trees or your shrubs from being attacked by boars or whatever the the critter is that's you know that attacks your tree, but if you wait until the pores are in the roots, and you, if you wait until the damage has been done, well, you've probably lost the tree. It's the same thing with business. You want to be preventive and do this due diligence. And unfortunately, it's like insurance; you don't really know the value of it until you need to use it. You know, and and that's yeah. why you know taxpayers are often hesitant. They're like, "Oh, you're just trying to sell me something I don't need." Well, you know, okay, let's we'll see what happens. You know. <laughs> so, so I. 
by the way, this has been fantastic. I want to cover two more things and we're going to get wrapped up here. But the first thing is, is let's just spend a moment. What are some common mistakes that you see pest and lawn companies doing in the area of, of sales tax? And then, and then we want to talk about a, a, a specific case that's going on. But let's, let's start with that first, just so our listeners, you know, obviously most of our listeners are, are in pest and lawn. And I'm sure they're probably sitting back and saying, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm not taxed in my state, you know, I don't have a service tax or whatever. But what are some common mistakes that you see? And what should they be doing to make sure that they don't make those or avoid them altogether? Well, hopefully they have an accountant who has some sort of sales news tax background and they should be working with their accountant or if it's all in-house, they should have a, a person in-house who understands how sales news tax applies to their industry. And as I said earlier in the podcast, we talked. I talked about maybe performing due diligence at year end, making sure that what's been reported to the state, even if it's exempt, you know, has similar revenues to what's reported to the feds. But certainly um, there's probably, you know, due diligence with people you do business with. Are they charging tax? Should they be charging tax? And, you know, unfortunately for most business owners, you're so busy just trying to manage your sales that the administrative part of it just doesn't get attended to until it's too late. But I always recommend taxpayers, no matter what the industry is, Look at your fixed assets, keep a file of those invoices. You'll need them for not just for sales tax, but you might need them for personal property tax filings. You may need them in IRS audit. So there's a number of taxes that those invoices will, will apply to. So it's good to have them on hand or as some sort of digital folder where you can access them easily. Make sure your expenses, take a look at, you know, it's not just your, your cost of goods sold. I mean, if you have a, a marketing company, for example, let's say I'm a pest control company and I hand out marketing materials to my customers. I hand out pens, uh, refrigerator magnets, uh, little pads. Well, I, there's no sales tax in that because I'm just giving that to my customer to promote my business. But you have to make sure that the company that you're getting those promotional items from, and chances are that company's online, that they're charging tax because if not, it's subject to use tax. So it's things like that, um, even like IT services, very careful on how your state defines what are IT services taxable? What are, what are the services that are being performed? And do I have a tax exposure there? Because even if you're not subject to sales tax and you're audited, the auditor is going to focus on your expenses and a certain accounts are going to look at to see if you properly paid sales tax or you properly accrued use tax advertising where you might have your promotional items, computer, repair and maintenance, simple things, repair and maintenance on equipment or on your truck. Um, did the person properly tax it? And if not, it's going to fall on you. And those are things that it's just an annual review of your records, taking a look at certain accounts to see if you properly pay tax. Unfortunately, most business owners don't have time to do that. But certainly if you work with an accountant, they should hopefully provide that service for you. You can say to your CPA, hey, you know, I just want someone to quickly review my purchases. Just take a look at these vendors. Um, are they charging tax? Maybe the opposite's happening. They're charging tax and they should. So now we have a refund situation. Um, you know, that that's also a possibility. So that's what so, I would advise. It always comes down to having really good records. And so of course, you know, yeah. So on the use tax side, we covered that. And those who uh, are in states where, where pest control is a taxable service, one of the things that we find all the time when we go through this is our tax exempt taxpayers or customers, right, a school or a church or something, and they tell you that they're tax exempt and you just take them at their word, but you don't have the tax. <laughs> oh, my God, Dan, this, this is a home run. This quite, Let me tell you now how we do it in Nevada. So Nevada, they, you know, Nevada is a land of fraud. So they, they know everyone. <laughs> How do you identify? I am sin and fraud. I am oh, an Alveston supermarket. And I identify as a Roman Catholic church and therefore I'm not going to have sales. So every state's different. How you identify exempt, but in Nevada, if, a, if, a, if one of your customers claims to be tax exempt, there's only one way they are under statute in Nevada. They literally have to apply for exemption with the state of Nevada. The state of Nevada will issue a tax exempt letter that's usually good for five years. So if, if you have a brand new customer and they're claiming they're exempt, the question would be, well, I need your I need to have on file a copy of your sales tax exemption letter so that if I'm audited, 
I can show that to the auditor so they know why I didn't charge tax and we're good to go. So you just can't, unfortunately, you can't take them at their word. Real life example, I had a situation with a hospital. My client, you know, those sliding doors that you see at supermarkets um, and you see them in hospitals and, you, you know, they, they're, they're triggered when you, you walk in a portion of the concrete and it triggers the door to open. So my client did a repair for one of the hospitals here in Nevada and they just assumed they were tax exempt because they're a hospital. And in Nevada, that's not the case. The only hospital that's tax exempt is the county hospital and the other hospitals are for profit and they are not tax exempt. And when my client was audited, they were, you know, it was a large repair. I mean, we're talking to thousands of dollars and they were on the hook for the tax, unfortunately. Um, the good news is because I was representing them in the audit, I got that pulled from the sample because that's not a typical situation and we were able to tax it on standalone. But um, as opposed to having it on a sample than having extrapolated through the audit. But you can see there's situations where you might falsely assume, oh, I, I thought they were exempt. It's not the case at all. Uh, again, it's knowing the laws in your state. For Nevada, it's having that exemption certificate. I believe, you know, New York's the same way. You should have some sort of exemption. I believe New Jersey's like that. Some states, you can, it's an agency relationship. So it's a case by case. I mean, you can normally assume the federal government the county, the school district, uh, not a charter school maybe, but public schools, you can normally assume they're exempt, but they will have an exemption letter and they should present that to you. And, Tim, and, yes, I, so. and I find that most exempt organizations, if they have documentation showing they are, they're more than happy to give it to you. They're proud of it. They say, hey, look, I'm exempt. Here's my document. And here's the other thing. Just because you're IRS exempt doesn't mean you're exempt for sales and use tax. Um, that's often a mistake here in Nevada. They're like, oh, I'm a 501c3. I'm but that's fine because the IRS is a different jurisdiction. So right. it has nothing to do with Nevada sales tax. You have to have a letter from Carson City saying that you're exempt and, you know, here's the letter and you're good to go. Well, did we, uh... let's, let's switch gears and talk about the last, uh, this is a, uh, company that's near and dear to all of our listeners' hearts. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Michigan Supreme Court. Yes. So <laughs> I, I, I finally was able to secure copies of what went on with this. And if there's anyone from True Green listening, there's some assumptions I have to make. And, you know, I apologize to that person if I made the wrong assumptions. So from what I was able to determine from reading the whole history of the case is that there was a very astute accountant at True Green who said, who looked at the exemption, the agricultural exemption for Michigan and said, hey, you know, it, it's, um, it looks like this applied to us because, you know, the, the exemption is pretty upfront. If you purchase these items, which we do to provide our service, it says it right here. It says it's exempt. And they ran with that. However, they had been paying sales tax all these years. And of course, they've been filing taxes. So they only could go for a refund claim for the period of the statute that was open. We talked about that earlier. Um, and they filed a refund claim that was denied by Michigan and each court level got denied. And, you know, when I read the exemption myself, I'm like, hmm, why would they be denying us? So I finally was able to, to find what happened was the exemption was altered in terms of the wording. And the reason for the alteration is kind of beyond the scope, but Michigan had joined what they call the streamlined sales tax project, which required that certain exemptions be worded a certain way so it fits into the definition. So even though the legislature changed the wording and what they left out was certain key concepts, like it must be a business to business type. It must be used for agricultural production, not for lawn care. So they, what they did was they eliminated some words and to make it fit this project that was required for Michigan to join. So when you read the, and this was in 2004, so here we are years later and you have um, an in-house accountant who reads it and says, hey, why aren't we, why are we paying sales tax? It's a logical position he's taking. What happened, what should have happened was whenever you see an exemption, especially one that's changed over time, you have to look at the legislative reason. And what the court ruled was that, listen, the intent of the legislature when the exemption was passed back in the 30s was that it's for agriculture production, business to business, not business, 
It's not for long care. It's not for that. But just because some words in the exemption was changed to make it fit the streamlined sales tax project doesn't mean the exemption itself changed. The legislative intent is still there. So we're going to deny the refund claim. And this is one of those things where if you're going to go and file a refund claim or if you're going to claim an exemption, you just can't take it at face value. You have to understand the legislative history behind it. Earlier, I talked about the case I won last year when I went to hearing over fabrication labor. I mentioned, I looked at the, what was the legislative intent of taxing or not taxing fabrication labor back in the late 60s when this law or this exemption was, or this law was passed. And we couldn't find it. There was nothing on record that the AG's office could find or I could find. I guess over time, things got lost. So we could go with the literal words that were in the statute. However, for Michigan, the legislative intent was still on record. You still could find it. And that's what the state relied on to defend their case. The Supreme Court said, you can't, you know, even though the statute was kind of refined to meet the requirements of the Streamlined Sales Tax Project, it doesn't change the meaning of the exemption or the legislative intent, which, which is that it must be a business to business in an agricultural type situation. And um, True Green is not in that function. So therefore, so this, was, this was worth a lot of money to True Green. Basically, yes. they did not want to pay sales tax on the purchase of fertilizer and uh, other products that they, they purchased. And, and they they did pay the sales tax and, and applied for a refund. Is that correct? Gotcha. Yeah. Not okay. yet. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, it's it, and I, you know, I applaud the accountant for catching it because it shows someone is actually understanding the business and they're, you know, it's critical thinking. They see an exemption and say, well, wait a minute, why are we paying tax? Why is every company paying? Mm -hmm. What am I missing here? And they really, you know, I, maybe it's an experience. I know from experience, uh, just doing research, you have to go back and try to find what the intent of enacting the exemption or any law is at the time, because there'll be discussion on it. And that will tell you, do you really fit me in the exemption? Because if you bring this and you go to court, that's going to be your basis, right? You can say, well, look, when the legislator when the legislative session and they passed this back in 1970, it's here's here's the text, here's what they were talking about. This was the intent, and this is why it applies to us. You're going to win that case. Um, but if the if you can't locate that, all you can do is rely on what the law says. But it's also a really good um, lesson how two parties can read a statute and come up with two different interpretations because I'm not convinced when this first went to court that the state had gone back to the thirties to see what the intent was. I think the state had realized that some wording changed and this is why it is. And we're going to run with that. And that's why I kept going up the ladder because one lower court ruled in favor of truth, you know, true being another court said, no, finally, the Supreme court said, wait a minute, this is what it should be. And this, you know, so that was really, um, it was an interesting case. And it's a good, it, when I, when I go to teach research for sales and use tax, this is going to be a case I want to talk about because both sides, you know, they, they kind of did what they should have, but you really got to look at all the pieces. And it was great that an in-house, and I assume it was an in-house accountant, because um, that wasn't clear when I read the different uh, parts of the case, but True Green realized that, wait a minute, why are we paying sales tax on these items? Because it appears it's pretty black and white. The statute says um, I don't have to because, you know, everything fits us. But there was some wording that wasn't there. And that's where you have to peel back the layers further to see, you know, to really understand and make sure the legislative intent was that True Green is exempt from this. And clearly, if you read the history of it, that's not the case at all. So. Rich, this has been fantastic. One quick question before we wrap up here. Um, we, and I, our listeners know this, we have a website, pmpindustryinsiders.com. Can we just put your contact info up there? If there's one of our listeners that was listening to this and they, and they want to reach out to you, would that, would that be all right if we just throw your info up there and they can reach out to you and if they got questions about what's going on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And just because I'm in Nevada, it doesn't mean I can't assist you. If you're no, we've, we've used Rich for several uh uh, states. And we've also, we actually had Rich put together a grid on sales and use tax for all, all pest control companies, you know, whether their they're, they're, uh, service is taxable and whether the product is subject to use tax. 
um, that that we use for all of our client managers uh, to 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 determine that. So uh, it's not just Nevada. So uh, excellent job, Rich. I can't yeah, I, I can't thank that. you enough. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I, I really I really enjoyed this. You know, this is yeah. um, you know sales and use tax is kind of the black sheep of the tax family, and you know <laughs> just just a little. When I left public accounting, I was I worked in industry for a number of years. I worked in public accounting. And in 2009, I was with a firm here in Las Vegas. I've been with them for about five years. I was a tax manager and I was curious. I was, you know, I'm in my mid-40s. I'm like, am I going to be a partner here? And when, you know, we were we were top heavy and I really loved the firm. And I, I severed ties with them to begin this practice because I'm thinking to myself, I have this niche area that I, I work in a CPA firm that's 55 professionals. And I'm the only one that has a sales and use tax background. That's from my time in New York, because uh, most practitioners in New York have that background because it kind of goes hand in hand with the income tax. In Nevada, we don't have an income tax. So the practitioners are focused on federal tax. But having my state tax background from when I lived in, in Buffalo, New York, you know, I, I brought this knowledge to the table. And I started finding all these new revenue streams for our firm because we, you know, there was a lot of our clients that really didn't pay attention to sales and use tax and exposure was there. So at the end of the day, I said, you know, if you're going to start a business, is there a need for your service? And clearly here in Nevada, there was. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really a niche area and I can work with any state. And now with, you know, the laws are constantly changing and for pest control companies, I just want to warn you that as states kind of look for revenue, they're going to start taxing services. And I think pest control companies are going to be one of those services that states well, will talk We're already seeing that in North Carolina and, and it's already happening in, in a couple other states that we're in. But Rich, this has been amazing. It's been fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Just a reminder for all of our listeners, all the resources and topics that we talked about today and previous podcasts are available on pmpindustryinsider.com. Just take a look under show notes. You can look for this episode. And as Dan likes to say, we are highly paid for this, which means we're not paid at all. So if you enjoy the podcast, we would very much appreciate a rating, a review. If you, and like I always say in all of our episodes, if you have complaints, concerns, or if there's something that's really, really bad, please call Dan. Don't call me. And with that, we're <laughs> signing off. <That's laughs> we'll see great. you all either. Take, take care, care now. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.